0: Alright, Luke chapter 18. So we're gonna we're gonna dig through here verses nine through fourteen. Um last week we we dealt with some difficult difficult ground. Aaron dealt with the parable of the dishonest manager, and he really talked about how that is the most difficult parable in the Bible, and certainly I agree with him about that. Uh, even after hearing him preach about it and trying to dig into it, uh, he would tell you even himself that there's some areas in that that are just still very difficult to work through. Very difficult parable. But this week's going to be different. I And I guess it, it it may be better to say that you preach the hardest parable versus saying you preach the easiest parable, but... Um, I'm I'm swinging the pendulum all the way to the other side, and I'm going to probably what could be considered the easiest parable in all of the Bible. In fact, it it pretty much does not even need explanation. It pretty much just speaks for itself. There's not much that's confusing here. There's not much for us to get caught in the weeds with. But I'm really coming here intentionally because... Number one, we're dealing with parables, and this is a parable Jesus spoke, so it, at minimum, has to be on the table as an option. But um, I want to bring us to reconsider the glories of the gospel. Not not to reconsider in terms of, you know, rewrite or reevaluate the gospel in its truth, but rather reconsider in in the sense of seeing it afresh, seeing the aspects of the gospel, holding it up and seeing it in the light and everything that it is, all of its beauty. Um, this this parable really does have something glorious to tell us if if we would see it, if we would look beyond the simplicity of it. And I'm going to tell you something, brother. And I've had. Um, This parable has been helpful to me this week. Um, Obviously, all of you now know, if you didn't know before, but Kelsey had surgery a couple days ago, but that's been a very small part of what has gone on this week in my life. Some very difficult things that we have had to deal with. Some of you know them. Some of you don't know any of them, but... It's been, a, it's been a very difficult week, brethren, a very difficult week. Um, such to where I have had difficulty thinking about whether or not I was going to stand up here to preach. It, it, it's just been very burdensome upon my heart. And I know that, that all of you in here look to myself and Aaron and Manny to some degree um, for strength, for fortitude, for not wavering. And we want to be that, but brethren, there are times when it is hard for us too. There are times when our hearts are weak. There are times when, when we have not much left in us. There's times when our, our hearts are wavering, and um, brethren, the truth of of the gospel here has been a reading the Bible about the bomb of Gilead, and this has this has been the only thing that I have had to. The only thing of recourse for me to come back to this basic truth of the gospel of Christ's forgiveness for sinners. And in that, us having hope that even in, even in difficult seasons and, and, and periods of hardship, we can still find joy in those things. And these words of, of our Lord have been helpful to me this week. It's not in this passage, but he says, learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brethren, those words have been, have been my sanity this week. To come to Jesus, he's gentle and lowly of heart. That's where we will find rest for our souls. There's no other place for rest, brethren. You're not going to have it anywhere else. And uh, coming back to the beauty of the gospel this week has been my help. And I want you to see that. This This is really not... It is mainly for us a word concerning salvation, but it is not just that. And I want you to see that. There's a reality here for us that if we would come humbly before the Lord, there's much more than just salvation at stake. Much more glorious things in store for us. So... Let's uh, let's just read this passage first, and then we will begin to break it down into some sections. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who humbles himself, or everyone who exalts himself, will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. So I want to deal with this in two parts. Um, As I said before, I'm on a mission here to bring us face-to-face with the tax collector and the beauties of the gospel. Um, So we are going to briefly deal with some things concerning the Pharisee, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time drawing out some principles in regards to the tax collector and his part in the story. But I want to do this using somewhat of a paradigm from the Bible. So we read James chapter 4 earlier. You get the same quotation in 1 Peter chapter 5. It says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's not new. They are pulling that straight from Proverbs chapter 3 in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is what would have been the Bible of the early church and the, and the disciples. So that truth, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, is how I want to do this. We're going to look at how God opposes the proud. We're going to deal with the Pharisee. And we're going to see how there is abundant grace given to those who will come in humility. And we'll see that in the, in the tax collector. Brethren, there's there's a truth in the Bible. It's this. Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look. God is saying this. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And while we may not be able to explain everything that is involved in God looking to some particular person, we know that in this case, it is good. It is good, brethren, and we want that. We want that look, whatever that entails, whatever that means, we want that from God. But if we don't fit the categories, humble and contrite, the fact of the matter is we won't get that look, brethren. It won't be ours. Grace Grace is, is like water. Water is going to flow to the lowest place. Water never flows uphill. And grace is the same way. It will go to him or her who is lowest. And the more we walk in pride before God, not recognizing our great need for Him in all things, the less of Him we will receive. That's a surety from God's Word. The more we come to Him as a child who has no other hope, no other love, nothing else to look to, we will find in that a fountain of grace which flows continuously. Again, not just pertaining to salvation, but in all things. When we we come to God in salvation, we, we come and we receive grace, forgiveness, pardon for our sins, but it doesn't stop there. That's not all the grace we need from God. It's all of grace, everything that we do from start to finish. And if we want more of that, brethren, we have to come this way. We have to come this way. Grace will flow like water, brethren, down the hill to the lowest place. So let's look at this briefly, starting with the Pharisee. I see two ways in which this Pharisee is prideful. God resists the proud. And in and, and, and him being In two particular ways, prideful. Those are two ways in which we can also be prideful and thus hindering God's grace towards us. The first one is self-righteousness. The second one is failing to give God all the glory that he is due. And certainly the reality is the latter comes as a result of the former. Those who simply uh, are gonna are gonna live their lives in self righteousness will not give God glory for everything. So they're connected, but but let's look at this first this first issue here. Number one, the, the Pharisees' self righteousness. Now I want to I want to give you another word, um, another phrase maybe if you will, but I want to look at them a little bit differently. So the other phrase is self-reliance, self-righteousness and self-reliance. And I want to deal with these a bit differently because here's the deal. Self-righteousness and self-reliance are both evil. They're both in in, in opposition to God, but they're not exactly the same and they don't apply exactly to the same people. Because brethren, a self-righteous person simply cannot be a Christian. You, You cannot Trust in your own righteousness for salvation at the same time also trusting in Christ's righteousness for your salvation. You can't have it both ways. The exact problem that the Pharisee has here in this parable is one which marks out those who refuse to come to Christ for forgiveness of their sin. But the Christian can often act in a self-righteous way. And he can do that by living in self-reliance. The Christian would never consider their own righteousness as something that would earn them favor with God. The Christian would never think that that when they get before God, they will be accepted simply because they have been a good person. That's not Christian thought. But what they do do is they begin to live in a way that's similar. They forget their need for God. They live by their own strength in their own power, doing all things in their own ability and not remembering their need for God. And so though they don't think their righteousness earns them favor with God, they live in a similar way. They look to themselves doing everything, and they don't look to God's help. Both of these are major errors, but they're not exactly identical, and I want to deal with them a little bit differently. So let's look at this this first here, which is the Pharisee's self-righteousness. You see it in verse 9. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Very basic. This marks out all of those who will not recognize their need for the righteousness of another. They think that their righteousness is sufficient for what God requires. And this is, brethren, the ultimate height of pride. Before God. When someone says, I do not need God, I am not that sinful. That is the height of pride. And as I said before, that's not Christian. That's in fact distinctly unChristian. That's like every other religion. That's like the world. That's what the world is entrenched in. That kind of thought. Any of you who have been out on the streets or in in conversation with someone who's not a Christian, you have undoubtedly heard it over and over and over again. I'm a good person. I don't need God's forgiveness. I'm not that evil. I'm not like so-and-so. I haven't done this thing and I haven't done that thing. And so while they're not perfect, they, they use that as an excuse to say, I'm not as bad as the Bible says that I am. They want to justify themselves. Brethren, I'll tell you what that is. That is a self-righteous Pharisee. That's what that is. The world wants to call the Christian a self-righteous Pharisee. And undoubtedly, there probably are some out there that will act like that. But whatever they are, they're not Christian. But the world thinks that their deeds are going to justify them before God. That is a self-righteous Pharisee. They believe themselves all right in their own eyes. They believe themselves to be good people. And that will be a false sense of security in the end. It will not hold up, brethren. It could never hold up. Anyone who will not recognize themselves as in great need of God's grace will never receive it. On that final day, they won't receive the grace of God. Because they've thought themselves to be sufficient in and of themselves. But what about us? How that's that's the world. But we can be like the Pharisee. And we can be like the Pharisee by having a self-reliant spirit. Brethren, we when we're self-reliant, we tend to act self-righteous. It's pride that comes in and causes us to believe that we are something when we are in fact nothing. It's pride that comes in that removes from our mind the words of our Lord. Without me, you can do nothing. Those words need to ring in our mind constantly. And yet pride comes in and there they go, away. We don't remember them. And ultimately... Brethren, self-reliance is such a foolish thing because God does not promise grace to those who can do everything themselves. But he promises grace to those who cannot. He promises grace to those who know that they cannot. So if what we're looking for is, is help from God to be whatever it is that we want to be before God, The most foolish thing we can do is think that we don't need God to do it, or to forget God in doing it. Pride will literally stifle God's grace to the Christian. When we become self-reliant and we have that kind of spirit, we take our eyes off of Christ, we lose a sense of humility before God Almighty, Again, brethren, God did not come to aid those who think that they can do everything mostly themselves but need a little bit of help here and there. He comes to the aid of those who are lowly in heart. And he will give give help and grace in a time of need. Undoubtedly, he will. And the second way is this. Not giving glory to God. It says in verse 11, look with me here, verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, this is interesting. Because obviously you heard what I said. The second error is that he does not give God glory. But what does he say? He says, God, I thank you. So this is interesting. It seems at first glance that he is giving God glory. He thanks God that he's not doing the certain things that he lists here, obviously. And not only that, he's not standing in the middle of the marketplace shouting all of this out. What does it say he's doing? Standing by himself. So he's he actually standing alone, and, and even in the NASB it translates it, praying this to himself. So he, he is saying thank you. He's not in the midst of a bunch of people. He's away from the people, and he's even praying to himself. But the reality is, brethren, it's all a facade. We see it afterward. He's interested in God just hearing the things that he does. He wants to glorify himself before God. It's all fake. It's not real. It becomes apparent in the next verse that all he wants is God to see him as great in and of himself. It's a false show of humility. Brethren, that is the worst kind because it is so deceptive. It's so deceptive. And here's the fact of the matter. Folks, you can be all by yourself. You can be alone in your own room praying. And you could be a self-righteous wretch. It's It's a fearful thing. We can say the words, thank you God, and yet internally be full of ingratitude towards God. We see it clearly with him. The Pharisee wants to tell God all of the things that he supposedly does for him. Verse 12, he says that. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So what, what the Pharisee doesn't get and what we often forget is the truth that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And listen, I don't intend to use that verse as a means by allowing sin and and a way of life that doesn't honor the Lord. I've seen people do that before, where they want to say, oh, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I could be way worse. Well, obviously in the section, if you read it, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am, but the grace of God was not in vain towards me. So Paul is laboring, but, but he realizes it is that he is what he is, not because of his efforts, but because of the grace of God towards him. End of story. That's it. There's no other way to explain it for Paul. And the Pharisee, brethren, wants to boast. In what he has done. And listen to me, this is the same trap for us. Don't think for a moment that this isn't the trap for you and me. It is. The Pharisee wants to boast. And, and this doesn't need to be a blatant boast. Very rarely will Christians blatantly boast to one another. But look at him, right? He's, he's far away. He's praying to himself. It's not as blatant as we might think. In fact, his boast isn't even to other people. His boast is only to God in this situation. But Christians often go further than the Pharisee, and they want to boast in front of other Christians. But brethren, it doesn't even end there. It gets much uglier than that for us. We we not only want to boast, but we... We do it in the most sinful way where we want to boast without letting others think that we're trying to boast. We want to find a way to look good without looking like we're trying to look good in front of other people. Brethren, that is such levels of wickedness. It is not a recognition of us knowing that it is by the grace of God that we are what we are. And that what we're not, But if there's something that we ought to be before God, that we are not. It is pride that wants to hide that and put a front up in front of other people. And that is, is going to cut off God's grace to us. It will be a dam that stops it. When we walk in this kind of pride. How easy it is, brethren, to desire the glory of men. That's what the disciples were enthralled with. Just just a little bit before this in Luke chapter 9. They're debating who is the greatest. Jesus said this to his crowds. John chapter 5. I do not receive glory from people. We're going to live as He did, brethren. We need to live like that. Are we living as though we desire glory from men? It's a hindrance to God's grace. We have got to live. Jesus told His disciples uh, uh, another story. He says there's a servant, and if the servant's out working in the field and then you call him in side, would you just tell him to relax and, and eat with you, or would you have him now serve you at the table? And Jesus' point is, in the end, you ought to say, We are but unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. When when we get before when we get before God in the end, brethren. Are we going to be boasting about what we did and are we looking for the glory of men or are we simply going to get before God in humility and say, I'm nothing. I was just an unworthy servant. I only did what I was supposed to do. I didn't even do more than I was supposed to do. I failed in doing just what I was supposed to do because we are but unworthy servants, brethren. And false shows of humility like this Pharisee, and boasts about what we have done or what we will do will not bring God glory. These are are serious warnings for us. If we desire, and we ought to desire this, if we desire to receive grace upon grace from the Lord, if we desire Him to help us, brethren, we have to be careful to guard ourselves against self-reliance. That self-reliant spirit that that wants to pull our own selves up by our bootstraps, that wants to do it ourselves. We have to remember that we are nothing, and we need everything from God. We need to remember to give God glory for everything. I know how hard it is at times when we pray for things, and we we just forget them. And then we we end up six months down the road and the thing's happening and we we can't, we can't do not even remember that we prayed for that and that this thing that is now happening is a result of God answering our prayers. And you know what that does? That robs God. It is robbing God. God accomplished that through the prayers of his people and we have robbed him by not giving him glory for what he has done. And brethren, we just live like that. We just walk like that. In everything that we do, how, I mean, I remember, I remember reading. I'm trying to recall what it is now, and now I can't really remember, but um, reading about someone, and and they would say that if anything was worth doing, it would be worth praying to God for. And, And I would, I would, I would add to that, if anything is worth doing, it's worth thanking God for Because apart from Him, we would have nothing. In Him, we live and move and have our being. And then add on top of that, literally everything that you have in your life. Your job, or even your lack of job. You could be dead, brother, and you don't even have to be here. And everything that you have is what God has given you. We ought to thank Him. We ought to give Him glory for it. The moment we become like this Pharisee walking in self-reliance is the moment that we hide ourselves from God and everything that he would have to offer to his people. But there is a great hope here. It's a great hope in this situation with this tax collector. We see the simplicity of the heart of this tax collector And it is a glorious thing to me. Gives me great hope. So let's just read this briefly. 13 and 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted." Now listen, to understand what exactly is happening here, we really have to grasp a little bit about what a tax collector was. And, and I get it, the name is pretty self-explanatory, He's a tax collector. He's the one that that collects taxes. But there was a reason why these people were so hated in Jesus' day. And why does Jesus put these two up against one another in the parable and make it such a stark difference? So here's, here's the deal. Tax collectors were Jews. But they weren't just Jewish people. They were Jewish people who were considered traitors to their own people because they were bought off by Rome. What would happen is you'd have an invading government, invading army, come in and basically conquer a nation. And when they conquered that nation, they would then employ the citizens of that nation to exploit the money from the people of that nation to then continue to build their empire. And as the land of Israel was taken over by the Romans, they would entice the Israelites to betray their own people by promising them big payout. That's all it was. It was money. The, the Jews that would collect the taxes, they were allowed to extort as much as they wanted from their own people. And boy, did they do so. The system was, from top to bottom, completely corrupt. And so the tax collectors were, understandably, Utterly despised. I mean, the the, the guys not only worked for an oppressive regime, but they were cheats. They they would steal the money from their own people and then put it in their own pocket. And you could imagine this kind of thing in our own day. You could imagine that. I mean, it it might be hard to, to get it now, but imagine for yourself this country becoming one where Christians are having difficulty and they're persecuted by the leaders of the by by the rulers of the nation and then they entice people who are professing Christians to be those who come and they find a church meeting like this and they come in and they barge in with guns and they take everybody's money and then they go out and they profess the name of Christ out there Brethren, there was no place lower to go than to be a tax collector in the Jewish mind. That was the sinner of all sinners. The greatest traitor that could ever be. And so with that backdrop, here's what we see. We see a Pharisee. And listen, we th- what do you think when you hear Pharisee? Bad. You think bad. You think hypocrite. You think ungodly. You think, you know... Washes the outside of the cup, but doesn't clean the inside of the cup. But you know what? They did not think that. The people in Jesus' day did not think of the Pharisees like that. We think of that because we get we read this, and we read Jesus' rebukes of them. But the people saw the Pharisees as the most righteous people there were. And so you have a Pharisee, and you have this, this ungodly, Just tax collector sinner over here. And here they come, both up to the temple. And the tax collector, he stands far off. They've they've both come up to the temple, just like the Pharisee, but, but he feels unworthy, very much unlike the Pharisee. And not only does he stand far off, but he won't even look up. The Jews would often lift their hands and and look up to pray. You find Jesus doing this in the Gospels and in other places. But nevertheless, the the point is this. He is so ashamed, he cannot even bear the idea of drawing near to God or looking up as though he would be talking to God. None of that is even on the table. He can't even do it. And though this is the case... He has no other hope. I mean, what else is he supposed to do? So what does he do? Brethren, he beats his chest and cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's it. That's all we have. We don't have anything else. That's all he said. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Full stop. Nothing else there. Brethren, how often do we tend to think that God requires of us more than a genuine desire for mercy and forgiveness? We often think that there's more to it than that. And look at him. That's all he says. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We sing that song. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I claim. And is that not who the Lord is looking for? People who have no other hope but to say, I need the cross. That's it. I I have nothing to bring to God. This tax collector had nothing to offer God. The Pharisee might have thought he had things to offer to God, but even even the tax collector knew he couldn't even present anything that could even begin to look like that. He had nothing, nothing to offer him. And that, is that not, brethren, who the Lord is looking for? Those who will come and say, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I have no other hope. Those who are empty of everything but hope in God, brethren. This tax collector, he's an image for us. Just that sentence, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say happens? he goes home justified. How can that be? How can this tax collector be totally justified? All his cheating and bribery and extortion, treachery against his own people, forgiven, gone. How could that be? He was the lowest of the low, despised undoubtedly people would have told him, there is no hope for you. You are outside the kingdom, buddy. And yet he's the one who's declared justified. The Pharisee, the people saw this man as a righteous man. And Jesus says, nah, the tax collector is the one that's declared righteous. I mean, these are some shocking things. This is obviously not the only time Jesus said things like this. Jesus would say things to the Pharisees, like the prostitutes and Gentiles and tax collectors come into the kingdom before you. This is powerful things. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why, just a a little bit before this, we have that image. Some of you uh, who were there during prayer meeting, we, we read through it. But this woman comes to Jesus, He's eating at the house of a Pharisee. And this woman comes and she's weeping at his feet. And it says that she's a great sinner. We don't know what the sin was. A lot of people people think that she probably was a prostitute. I mean, we don't know, but they certainly know that she is a well-known great sinner. And here she is at the feet of Jesus. She's weeping and and wiping his feet with her tears, with her hair. And Jesus Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. I mean, if there was anything she was looking for, it was peace. And she didn't even say anything. I mean, at least the tax collector says, be merciful to me, a sinner. She doesn't even say anything to Jesus. And he knows her heart. He knows what she desires, and she goes in peace. So this this tax collector is a great hope for us, brethren, a simple cry for mercy and grace. Brethren, God has taken the initiative to offer mercy to people who do not deserve it. Not a one of us deserves it. And Paul actually makes himself out to be a great example of this in the Bible. And maybe it's kind of hard to get the idea of the tax collector. How is it that this, it it just doesn't hold the weight for, I get it. I I read it and, and I know what it says and it doesn't hold the weight for me that I think it should hold. But let me give you another angle here of the Apostle Paul and maybe we can see this love displayed upon such a sinful person. Go to First Timothy chapter 1. We see 1 Timothy 1. We're going to read verses 12 through 16. And this is an unbelievable outflow of grace. And and the thing is, Paul uses himself as an example here. But the grace shown to Paul is shown in no greater measure to him than it is shown to any other person. Though we might think it is, it isn't. It is the same for any sinner given mercy and grace from God. Let's read this starting at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him through eternal life. Now listen, listen to again to what he says that he was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now listen, the ESV Pretty much every other translation is making Paul's claims somewhat palatable for us, okay? They're they're packing Paul's previous sins into these three neat, sort of clean offenses, words that we really don't even know what they mean to the degree that they, they ought to have meant to his original readers. And we don't see the ugliness of it. I want, I want to read this to you. This is a mix of a couple different translations. Formerly, I would speak dreadfully evil things, insulting and even cursing Jesus Christ. I was a shameful and outrageous and violent aggressor of the church and would torture, oppress, and treat with hostility those who were his people. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems to speak a little more to the situation than blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. There's a weight to this, brethren. We ought not make light, and I'm not even saying we do this, to make light of it. I just don't even think we really get it. But we ought not make light of Paul's former sins, because Paul wouldn't want us to make light of Paul's former sins. We ought not make light of his. We ought not make light of ours, brethren. Paul was speaking evil things against Jesus Christ, cursing Jesus Christ, killing those and hunting down those who professed Faith in Jesus Christ. He would torture them, he would oppress them, treat them with hostility. Paul was an enemy of God. He was. In absolute rebellion, filled with rage and hatred toward Jesus Christ. And brethren, so were you, and so were I. It's no different for us. That mercy shown to him is the same mercy that was shown to you. And I. But brethren, what would you put there? What would you have put on your list? If Paul says, formerly I was these things. Brethren, what were you formerly? Were you formerly an adulterer? Were you a liar? Was your mouth full of cursing and bitterness? Were you formerly full of anger and hatred and rage, uncontrollable? Were you formerly sexually immoral? a lust addict driven by impure passion? Were you formerly committing abominable deeds? Were you formerly a drunkard? Were you formerly a drug addict, a junkie, whose life was bent on finding the next high to satisfy your idol of self-pleasure? Or maybe you didn't live that kind of life. Maybe you showed yourself to be a hater of God by hearing his word and his promises and his compassion toward sinners your entire life, and yet would not fully submit to him. Maybe you were that kind of person. But brethren, what would you have said about yourself? What were you formerly? Because it is, it is by looking at that, in how God has taken you out of that, brethren, that you see the full display of the love of God. Paul was was certainly ashamed of what he had done, but was not ashamed to say, that's what I did. No longer what I am now. You see, Paul says that in, in 1 Corinthians 6, such things were some of you. He has this list of these atrocious behaviors and sin. He says, such were some of you, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. Brethren, That's the display of God's love and mercy towards sinners. You know that the Bible says that it was while we were still sinners Christ died for us, not while we were righteous, not while we were good. While we were still sinners, you were an enemy of God. You hated God, and God hated you because of your sin. And in that, Jesus Christ died. For you, in that the love of God, it, it, it comes in first. It has to act first. <laughs> Listen to these 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 words again, from Paul. They ring loudly, just like the tax collector. But I received mercy. He received mercy, brethren. Again, how can it be such abominable acts before God? And there it is, mercy at the door. He says, grace overflowed. for Grace overflowed for me. Grace overflowed for me. Being the foremost of sinners. In fact, Paul says that the reasoning for all of this, the grace of God shown to him, is that he would be, be made a spectacle of sorts. to to others. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason. Now he's going to tell you as the foremost, as, as the foremost of sinners. He just put that in the previous verse. I receive mercy for this reason that, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example You see that? That's the whole reason for it. Paul is saying, Jesus Christ had mercy upon me so that you would see that if God could save me, look what he could do for any other person. And that, brethren, is how we ought to think. We tend to act like that Pharisee at times, thinking that people aren't as righteous as we think they ought to be or or we look out to the world and we expect something of them they're lost people and we think oh i'm going to share the gospel with this person because they might be more willing to accept it or i'm going to i'm going to do i'm going to try to speak to this person because they're not as hostile and they're not as lost brethren look at yourself what god has taken you out of and if god can save you he can save anybody God could save me. He could save anybody. But nevertheless, that mercy displayed for Paul, the mercy displayed for the tax collector, what great love that is, brethren, from God towards sinners. And and what is required? Nothing more than what was required from the tax collector, a humble cry for mercy. That's it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We can take hope in this truth, brethren. We can take hope. The example of this tax collector, the gospel in its most pure form provides for us the greatest gift that we could ever have and and something for us to find complete joy and satisfaction in when there is nothing else to take joy in and satisfaction in. Think of those words from It Is Well. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Brethren, what a glorious thought that your sin has been put away. Not in part, not mostly, but all of it, every bit of it has been put away. And God welcomes you in as a daughter or as a son, and he he marks you out as blameless. But brethren, you're not blameless, but he sees you as blameless. You're like the tax collector, and I'm like the tax collector, worthy of nothing but to be despised. You and I have acted as a traitor towards Christ more than that tax collector has ever acted as a traitor towards his own people. And yet, God has mercy on us. Isaiah tells us something glorious about Jesus. He says that the servant will come and he will not break a bruised reed or put out a faintly burning wick. We are often that bruised reed and that faintly burning wick, brethren. And Jesus Christ is tender towards us as his people. We might might think of seeing a farmer going through his field and he sees this reed or this this uh, stalk bent over and bent in half. Just rip it out of the ground. It's bad. It's, it, it's no good anymore. But not Jesus. Someone might find a flame barely flickering on a worn out wick for a candle. <laughs> this happens almost every morning at my house. When Sergio's there, <laughs> he leaves his candle burning for like four hours when we're studying, and and I, I I walk by before I go to work, and it's just I mean it's just bare. There's nothing left in it, right? When might think to put that thing out? It's barely done burning anyway, but not Jesus. He will come, blow upon that wick, seeking to ignite a greater fire than was there before. Brethren, remember, a humble and contrite heart. That's what the Lord is looking for. And and when we come in that manner, there is abundant grace and mercy laid out for us. Let's pray.